As you start to reach more people, things start to feel more complex. There's more to do and more to keep track of, and it starts to actually take time away from creating content. I felt this struggle personally. The more creator science grew, the more it felt like I was dropping the ball. So I did something about it. I built a set of rock solid systems, all in Notion to support the business as we grew. And it worked like a charm. I've now taken my personal Notion setup and productized it. It's called Creator HQ, and it's the complete operating system that you need for your creator business. I built Creator HQ to be an all-in-one workspace designed to save you more time, create more content, and drive more revenue. By leveraging Creator HQ, we are publishing more than we ever have, and we're nearing $1 million in annual revenue because of it. It brings all of your data and processes into one place with custom-built dashboards to reduce friction in managing tasks, creating content, and collaborating with your team. I've seriously spent more than three years building this, and now you can have the same systems that I use right out of the box. In the lab, one of our members just posted, I have spent the last few weeks diving into Creator HQ, learning how it works, and making it my own. This is the first time in a while that I felt this organized and filled with hope that I can find a workflow that will work for me with my whole business. This is gold. I will definitely be giving a testimonial for this badass product. If you're new to Notion, don't worry. I've included a ton of specific tutorials to help you learn how to use Notion generally and Creator HQ specifically. I've never seen another Notion product integrate tutorials like we have here. More than 300 other creators are already using Creator HQ, and I am not exaggerating when I say I would be lost without this system. Creator HQ is what keeps the trains running over here. As a podcast listener, I'm giving you my best price. You can get 10% off using the promo code podcast at checkout. Just head to creatorhq.co to watch the video and learn more. That's creatorhq.co and use promo code podcast to save 10%. Hello, my friend. Welcome back to another episode of Creator Science. I am so excited to share today's episode. It's with a friend of mine, Tori Dunlap, who has been on the show before. Tori was originally on episode number 88 of this show back in January of 2022, and a lot has changed for Tori. Now, Tori is the founder of her first 100K. This is something that she built after saving $100,000 herself by age 25. She quit her corporate job in marketing and founded this company to fight financial inequality by giving women actionable resources to better their money. Now, Tori started on TikTok, or at least that's where she first had her breakthrough. She has two and a half million followers on TikTok. She has almost a million followers on Instagram. But here is why Tori is back here today. Not only has Tori launched a podcast called Financial Feminist since being on the show and is one of the top business shows out there, but she has also launched a book by the same name, Financial Feminist, and that is a New York Times bestseller. We ended up being number four on the New York Times bestseller list. I think on a normal week, we could have been at number two, maybe number one. So I reconnected with Tori because I saw her writing on LinkedIn about the process of writing this New York Times bestseller. Not only will we talk about why she thinks she could have been number one on a normal week, but she's very, very honest about the timeline, the process, the things that met her expectations, the things that were outside of her expectations. Here's a preview. I personally thought I could get this book done in nine months, and that was the most naive bullshit ever. (laughs) The hardest thing I've ever done professionally is trying to write and market this book, period. Second sentence, while also trying to run a business. (laughs) Like, awful. 
We get really, really specific in this episode. We talk about her entire process from writing the proposal, finding a literary agent, selling the book, writing the book, marketing the book, including the timeline for all the things I just mentioned. Not including the book proposal. I started writing when I landed the book deal officially in like April, May of 2021. We got a final, final draft probably late summer of 2022. This is one of the longer episodes that I've aired here on the show, but I had a really hard time cutting it down because literally up into the last minutes of the show, Tori is saying things like this. If you are, for whatever reason, like tuning me out and like kind of half listening to this episode and you want to write a book, I need you to like pull your car over and I need you to stop and I need you to listen to this because this is single handedly, I think, one of the smartest things we did. Really, really excited for you to listen to this. Tori was super generous and transparent in everything she shares here. So if you are writing a book or considering writing a book, I think this is a must listen to episode. It really goes in depth into the entire process from proposal to publish and even marketing post publish. So let's get into it. Let's talk with Tori Dunlap from Her First 100K. New York Times bestselling author Tori Dunlap back on the show. How does it feel for me to introduce you that way? I was just going to say it. I never will get sick and tired of hearing of it. It's it's lovely. It's the thing I wanted professionally, probably more than anything, especially in the last year or two. So the fact that it happened, I love hearing it. I'm like, yeah, bring it on. Let's do it again. Yes, Let's run it again. Amazing. <laughs> well, I want to talk all about the process today. I want to talk about the timeline and everything. So let's talk. Let's yeah. start with. When did writing a book even come on your radar? Is this something that you always wanted to do? Yeah. So if you follow me, you probably know this because it became kind of the part of the marketing. But I, I mean, I'm recording this in front of my bookshelf. Like I was a voracious reader growing up. That was my, what I loved to do. I wouldn't go anywhere without a book. Like there's so many times that my parents remember like driving, like my mom would drive to the grocery store with me in the back seat and it was a 10 minute drive and I would still have a book in the back. And so I actually wrote down because I was this kind of kid when I was seven or eight years old, like one of my bucket list items, like I will write a book. Now, did I think it was going to be a personal finance book? (laughs) Fuck no, that was not part of the plan. (laughs) But I had known for a really long time that I wanted to do this. Then as her first 100K started growing, and of course, you know, we have part one of the podcast talking about that growth. It became clear that this would be another avenue and a natural way to to reach more people, to grow the brand. Um, And I actually got reached out to by my first publisher in 2019. I had this big splashy piece in Market Watch that was like our first press hit that we ever got. It went viral. It got like a million views in like a couple days. They, you know, this, this publisher, this huge publishing house reached out and was like, you know, do you, have you ever thought about writing a book? And I was still working a nine to five job. Her first hundred K was a side hustle. It was gaining momentum, but I was like, I remember this is, of course, my naivete at that time, too. I was 24 and I was like, I will never get this opportunity again. I have to say yes. But I knew I also I I couldn't. I did not have the bandwidth. I did not have the experience. And it like overwhelmed me. And I, you know, I had a conversation with her and she was really great. And we went back and forth. And then finally I emailed and I was like, I know I don't have the bandwidth to do this right, but like, I would love to keep in touch with you. And she's like, yeah, of course. And I was like, okay, thank God. And so then when late 2019, early 2020, when I was a full-time entrepreneur, it was like, okay, it's time to start actually thinking seriously about this. Um, And we can talk about that whole process if you want to. But then it was like, okay, we're actually going to start pursuing this, start thinking about like, what does it actually look like to have this book out into the world? 
Now, in the beginning, when you first got that outreach in 2019, one, I want to know like how direct that was. Did it seem like this is the beginning of a very long conversation yeah. or it was, was it like, hey, if you say yes, I'll send you a contract and you can sign it. And we'll start writing a book tomorrow. Oh, it's never like that. No. And it's, it's like, we're now starting to pitch TV shows and it feels very similar where it's like, oh yeah, we really like you and we like what we do and we'd love to have an intro conversation with you. And then this is like a multi-year process <laughs> TV, even more intense. I think, um, it was a, uh, like, I think part of the publisher or like, like part of an editor's job, right. Is to like, get the new book to edit. Like what is going to be the book that hopefully sells well, but at the very least is like a good thing to add to their repertoire, their resume. Right. So I think this editor saw me someplace was like, Oh, she would probably write a pretty cool book. Have you ever thought about writing a book? Then it's kind of like you have a contact, right? You have someone that you can, you can like, I met with her in New York in, yeah, early 2020. I had coffee with her. And then it was actually really funny when I actually sent my book proposal to her, she turned it down and she said very kindly, she was just like, hey, I think you're great. I think this is great. But publishing in 2020 was having a meltdown, mm -hmm. right? Because of COVID. And this was before like book talk really took off. Like she was like, I like, we just don't have the bandwidth to publish it. And then I got an email after, after the book came out where she was like, Hey, great book. Really sorry. We weren't able to work together. So it was like this really interesting, you know, uh, like arc of a relationship as I hit my microphone. I'm sorry, but, um, <laughs> it was definitely not a, like, I'll send the contract over to you. I, I, I'm sure that happens with like celebrities maybe, but like, it depends on who you are. Right. And again, we can talk about this. Like if you are already some sort of public person, you are typically like putting your book proposal out there and people are like, it's a, it goes into an auction. I was less of a public person when I was writing this book proposal in like mid 2020. And so it was, okay, get a book proposal together, get a lit agent, talk, you know, make contact with some people that would be interested in talking with us and see what goes from there. It was less, less sexy, I think, than some, some other things. Now, of course, if I write a second book, that's probably how it's going to go. But that first book was more like, hello, I'm writing a book. Look at me. than like editors scrambling to publish it. So in the beginning, it sounds like they reached out to you and or your team directly. And you kind of handled that conversation initially. Yeah. You said in 2020, when you did the proposal, you did get a lit agent. How do you feel about the the timeline and process of that? Do you wish you would have gotten a lit agent sooner or waited a little bit longer? I think having a good lit agent is absolutely critical to this whole process because they're they have the connections and also, you know, especially one that is is very well versed and has worked with authors before. They have standing relationships with publishers already and they have a reputation. And so I think when you're thinking about, you know, if you're out there listening and you're like, I want to write a book, the thing that you want to do first is figure out what that book looks like. And you can do this with a potential lit agent. It's kind of like chicken or the egg. Sometimes you need to find the lit agent first and then write the book proposal. Other times, like the book proposal is what helps you get a lit agent, especially if you're like lesser known. But the book proposal is like, it's pretty intense. It's basically a marketing document. And this is what people don't realize. It's, it's about your writing. Yes, you submit a sample chapter, but the rest of the book proposal is like, what is the book about? Who does it appeal to? Why should you write this book? How are you going to market the book? It's much more about like the marketing strength that you're going to bring it's like a business plan for the book. 
Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's a great way of saying that. Yeah. It's, it's, it's how you're going to sell the book with a little bit of what the book's actually going to look like in the writing of it. And so a lot easier <laughs> to pitch a book with, you know, the outline of it. So that was what my lit agent had recommended to me. We worked on it together and, you know, she would send kind of her thoughts or her revisions. And then when we felt like we had a good, solid, solid outline of it, then we started sending it to either the re- the relationships we had already cultivated with uh, publishers that were interested or, you know, trying to get it out to to other people. And then you start having conversations that you realize sometimes they aren't right. Like we had one of one publisher who was interested, who like really wanted to publish our book, but didn't didn't want to publish the kind of book I wanted to write. Mm. And then you have a really interesting choice where you're like, okay, do I write the kind of book that they want me to write? Or do I write the kind of book I want to write? And I would always say, pick the one that you want to write. (laughs) So yeah, we ended up turning that down. It never got to the offer stage. We just had a conversation. It's kind of like dating, right? You like get to a certain point where you're like, oh, I want kids and you don't. Okay. Um, so it, it, you have to decide like, what does that look like? And it is like going to be a relationship that you have for years. So Again, I think when you are lesser known, it's like, oh my gosh, somebody's talking to me. That's great. But like really make sure that is a person that you want to work with or or an organization you want to work with. I would assume that finding a literary agent is a little bit like dating too, depending on how well you already know somebody. So did you talk to several potential literary agents or did you have a strong referral that you just went with? I probably should have. I ended up working with one of my friends who is a, she is a financial blogger on the side. And then she works in publishing. So she had this really unique understanding of what I was trying to do because she was in the space. And I think that that was where her strength lied for me, but my book was the first book she had ever sold. And so I think, and even she would tell you that like the negotiation was probably less intense than it should have been. So I ended up walking away with a smaller deal than I think I would have if we were more strategic about that. And so we ended up parting ways about six months ago, very amicably. But it was it was one of those things where I, I it was a perfect uh, collaboration for where I was at the time of, okay, I don't understand this industry very well. I need somebody who I know I can trust. And I'm trying to flesh out what this book looks like in my head. And she has a very unique understanding of this industry in a way that another lit agent won't so that she can not only help the book get sold, but also literally like help birth whatever the book actually looks like. So I think we had a relationship that is pretty unique and that isn't normal. My current lit agent, it like works at United Talent. She works at UTA, sold, you know, probably at this point, a hundred plus books, like knows the industry in and out is literally calling me and I love her, but calling me being like, okay, when's book number two (laughs) coming? Um, And so like, it's much more like a traditional, you know, kind of like lit agent relationship. But yeah, I think I really needed the kind of the kind of support that wasn't just like negotiating the deal and navigating publishing, but specifically like, how do I write a book that does like checks the boxes that I want to check for what this book actually looks like? For folks who haven't gone through this process at all, but have maybe heard of like a creator manager, can you help us understand the the model behind mm. uh, a lit agent and a publisher? Like, what are we talking yeah. about in terms of of numbers to whatever degree you're comfortable sharing? Always willing to be transparent, especially with you. This is like a larger conversation about just like creators or authors in general and like agencies. So 
there's a couple different kind of agencies. There is the big players, CAA, UTA, that will basically take on a client. Like, let's say it's Beyonce, right? They take on Beyonce and they are Beyonce's agent for everything. They're her agent for if she wants to write a book. They're her agent if um, Oprah calls and wants to do a TV deal with her. They're her agent if... um, you know, she is touring and is trying to figure out like what it like booking venues and that sort of thing. So those agencies are like the all encompassing agencies that cover everything that you do. Then there's agencies that do just pieces of that. There's just like brand development agencies, right? That are just doing like influencer or brand partnerships. There's speaking agencies that are just, you know, getting you to conferences or colleges. There's, yeah, just touring agencies, right? And just like with, you know, book publishing, there's just like a lit agent, right? That's their specialty is they're just getting you a book deal. So you kind of can go in one of two ways, or really it's, I guess it's three. You can get one agency that covers you for everything. And typically you have to be some sort of name. Like I'm repped by UTA for our podcast, for TV. Oh, and book obviously. And then we handle the rest of that in-house. So that's option one is like, you get somebody who covers everything. Option two is you just get agencies for every single thing. So you might have six agencies, right? That handle different parts of your business. And then you can kind of do what we've now done, which is kind of like a hybrid where you have, you know, the big agency for some things, and then you have either a smaller agency or you do in-house for, for others. It's kind of like a Venn diagram hybrid. In terms of what percentage you're going to pay them, it's anywhere from about 10 to 20%. Typically with lit agents, you are just paying them let's say 15% of your advance. Hmm. Your advance is the amount of money that a publisher is giving you as basically your like salary to go write a book. And this is going to sound maybe obvious to people, but I did not know it at the time. This is an advance on your royalties, right? So if you get a $100,000 advance, that means that you won't see money, additional money, until you sell $100,001 of your book, right? So- they're typically taking the, you know, 10 to 20% of that advance number. And that's what you want. You don't want them taking money beyond that. Oh, I, I was under the impression that literary agents also took uh, part of the royalty ongoing. I'm sure that's negotiable depending on the agent. Mine didn't. Um, and I, I might be misspeaking. From my understanding, I think it's just the percentage of the advance, but I could be wrong. That was how we structured my deal was... 15, I think it was 15% of my advance. Yeah, it's it's probably different agent to agent, yeah, relationship to relationship. I'm sure it's one of those things that's more negotiable than people realize. So it's good to hear that. <laughs> and I haven't had a conversation with my new lit agent because I haven't sold another book with her, right? So that might be a conversation where actually she's taking, or UTA really is taking a percentage of royalties. But the first deal that I had, I think it was 15% of my advance went to my agent. After a quick break, Tori and I dive deep into the proposal process, everything that's involved in a proposal. And later we talk about everything Tori did right and what she would change if she was launching a book today. So stick around. We'll be right back. If you know me, you know how much I believe in memberships. My membership is the core of my business and earning an income directly from your audience is one of the most sustainable ways for you to become a professional creator too. So I want to tell you about today's sponsor, Uscreen. Uscreen is a beautiful all-in-one platform that helps content creators earn a living from their videos by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. You can host private live streams for your members, 
build an on-demand catalog of premium content, and Uscreen gives you a community hub to interact with your members too. They can access your community from their mobile phone, so your membership is right there in their pocket. With a Uscreen account, you get video hosting, an out-of-the-box website, full payment and subscription management, and plenty of third-party integrations too. And Uscreen makes it easy to get set up. You get access to powerful website themes that are fully brandable with no coding skills required. Uscreen will even provide a dedicated success manager for you. Just about anyone that wants to make money from their content can do it with Uscreen. It's perfect for coaches, authors, influencers, and entrepreneurs in just about any niche. Right now, Uscreen is used by creators in fitness, education, news, kids entertainment, and more. That includes Yoga with Adrian and Creator Now, just to name a couple. Uscreen is the platform for building a video membership site that is great for generating a sustainable income for professional creators. If you create video content for your audience, I highly recommend checking it out. If you're interested in learning more about Uscreen, visit uscreen.link slash j. That's U-S-C-R-E-E-N dot link slash j and let them know that I sent you. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Last year, my wife and I started talking about her joining the business full time. This is a huge decision, not just for the business, but for our marriage. My wife, being the very smart and thoughtful woman that she is, suggested that we proactively sign up for therapy as a couple to help us communicate better before we started working together. It really helped us have better language to describe how we're feeling and listen to one another, which generally lowers the intensity of any conversation. Now, I had never been in therapy before, but here's something that I didn't expect. It didn't just help our dialogue, but it helped my inner monologue too. The way I understand my own experience has changed based on the tools that I got from therapy. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, so it's convenient, it fits your schedule, and you can be in the comfort of your own home. Just fill out a short questionnaire and you'll get matched with a licensed therapist. They even make it easy to switch therapists if it doesn't feel like a fit. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com creator today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot creator. Welcome back to my conversation with Tori Dunlap of Her First 100K. Now that we've gotten a high-level view of how the entire process went from a numbers perspective, I wanted to dive in deeper into the book proposal process itself. So I asked Tori if she went into the typical auction process that we had just spoken about. Mine actually didn't go into auction because I was not as as big as a name as I am now. It was kind of the relationships we had already built. So we, uh, I spent a couple months putting the proposal together. I think we had a final draft by July of 2020. And the irony, again, from our first episode, if you know a bit about my work, we started on TikTok in July of 2020. So you can (laughs) like, we had 30,000 followers on Instagram. Like we didn't have a podcast yet. Like we were pretty tiny, you know? So it's really funny to think about that actually, that the book proposal was getting sent when we were the just, you know, her first 100K was little itty bitty. So we started sending the proposal to the contacts we had already made. And that was typically from these kind of cold reach outs by publishers. The, have you ever thought about writing a book? Right. So we started sending those emails to, I think we had two or three people that were on our like contact list of people who had been interested before. Like I said, the first person I ever talked to turned us down very politely, but was like, we just like, we're not doing a lot of new books right now. And, you know, it's hard to remember what that felt like in 2020, but literally like 
supply chain concerns. Like some books were not getting published because they literally didn't have the paper to print them on. <laughs> like it was, it was a kind of a rough time. So throughout the end of summer, we were starting to have those conversations with people. So yeah, one turned us down. We turned another one down. I think there was another person that was in the mix and I, I don't remember what happened either. It just didn't work out. The funny, ironic thing. I'm on LinkedIn in December of 2020. I see randomly a post from someone at Day Street, which is an imprint of HarperCollins. And my mind is flagged because I am the most massive fan of the Try Guys and Day Street did their book. Mm. And I'm like, oh, okay. I know that imprint. I know what they're about. Uh, I literally like go to my bookshelf and I start looking and, oh, they've done Amy Poehler's book and they've done a couple others. Let me just, let me just like slide into her LinkedIn DMs. I message her. I'm like, hey, I am, you know, currently pitching my first book. I have this amount of followers. Here's my book proposal. I get the outline of a deal 10 days later from Day Street. Like when it happened, it happened incredibly fast. (laughs) But like it took probably, you know, a year. And then, of course, years of building the business to be able to support this. And, you know, I'm blowing up on TikTok, like we're growing actively during that time. And so we had a deal cemented. I could actually, I think, tell you the date. I think it was like January 20th or something like that. And so that was when the deal, like we were, you know, meeting with Rosie, who was the person who was going to be my editor at HarperCollins. Like we were starting to like actually that was taking shape at that time. So when it, when the dominoes did fall, they fell remarkably quickly, but it was literally just pitching somebody already having the book proposal together, already seeing the kind of traction that we were with everything. And then we actually signed the deal in April. So it was interesting. We had like kind of settled on the terms of the deal in January and then signed it in April, 2021. You mentioned how big this proposal was. Can you tell us, do you know like how many pages this proposal was to give people a a picture of how big of a document it is? Yeah, I mean, it depends on what kind of book you want to write because you have to include a sample chapter, right? And a sample chapter is going to look different, right? Some people who are writing like, you know, short stories or something like that, it's not going to be a very big chapter. Some people, you know, who are writing, I don't know, the history of World War II, that's going to be a huge sample chapter. I would say I could probably look at that Google Doc was around maybe 40 pages. I would say probably 10 pages to 12 pages of the like, other stuff the like, how am I going to market the book? My bio, the customer persona of who's buying this book, the the competing titles, like other books that are similar to mine. And then the vast majority of it is a sample chapter. I wrote the chapter about debt that is in my book was the sample chapter. A lot of things changed. A lot of things were different and they expect that they're looking for tone they're looking for like, how does this book feel when you read it? Right. Is it very like academic or is it like tongue in cheek, very fun, right? How is it formatted? Like for us, we are very intentional and we wanted to bring in other people's stories and almost do like sidebars. And if you have my mm-hmm. book, Financial Feminist, you know that that's how it looks is it's like, 
you have, you know, me talking about something and then you have like an either another expert or somebody coming in to talk about, you know, a different part of that. So my chapter about debt had someone from our community who worked at Victoria's Secret and talked about like having to dish out those credit cards to people <laughs> of like, would you, would you like to use your angel card today? And we have a whole, you know, segment with her. Uh, my section has, or my chapters have homework. And so we give them homework at the end. So they're really looking for like, how good of a writer are you? What is the tone, you know, the experience of reading the book? How, how does it feel? And then like, what is the format? Is it just like straight text? If you also want graphics in there, like, you know, I had a place where I was like, I'm going to put a chart here. And I didn't even need to like make that chart sexy. It was just like, there's going to be a chart. So they want to, they want more to get a feel for it and an understanding that like you are qualified and that you are actually going to like not renege on the contract that we give you. So as far as going from signed contract to published, because I believe you published the, the very beginning of 2023, correct? It was December 27th of 2022 was our release date. Okay. So just tail end, like last couple days of 2022. Is that the timeline that you expected and believed would happen from the point of signing the contract or did that change at all? I personally thought I could get this book done in nine months. And that was the most naive bullshit ever. <laughs> um, here's the thing is most people, most people get a ghostwriter. Most people have a ghostwriter. I am very proud of the fact I wrote this book. It was me while I was speaking, while I was creating a, three TikTok videos a day, while I was on podcasts, while I was doing our own podcast. Like I wrote this book. Would I recommend it? No, definitely not. It was so much work. Now I will write my book. Uh, most likely I will be the next person writing my book in the future because just my ego honestly can't take it. I'm like, if I'm going to have my name on it, I need to write it, but I will not also run the business at the same time. That was the hardest thing I've ever done professionally is trying to write and market this book period. Second sentence while also trying to run a business. <laughs> like, yeah awful. In terms of like the actual timeline, typically it's about a year. Like the contract gives you a year to write the book. It takes it like it really took about a year and a half until we got a final, final, final draft. I can't tell you the amount of times, like you could probably go on my computer and see final. No, this is the real final. Nope. I was getting like the final, final draft. Like literally you can see like financial feminist, final, financial feminist, final one, financial feminist, the real final fucking thing. Like that, that happened multiple times where you think you're done. And then it's like, Oh no, we got, we got more edits. Oh, we think we're done. Oh, actually we need to move this. Like, I think we finally got a final draft. July of 2022. So I started not including the book proposal. I started writing when I landed the book deal officially in like April, May of 2021. We got a final, final draft probably late summer of 2022. So it was actually about a year, but it was like, it, it, <laughs> it didn't feel like it. It felt somehow much longer and also somehow much shorter. If you are writing a book, I don't mean to say that my experience will be your experience, but I, I did so much reading about writing during that time. You will get the vast majority of it done in the last three months hmm. oh. because other shit will happen. You won't be motivated by a deadline. 
I think my editor, I like to think like my conspiracy theory is she did this on purpose. She gave me a final deadline of February 1st. And then she's like, actually the final deadline's like in middle of March. I got so much done the last two weeks of January. (laughs) I literally, I was like, I didn't leave my house. I got so much done. And then it was like a couple days before February 1st and I'm panicking and she's like, oh yeah, we have more time. And I'm like, damn it, Rosie. But also thank you. Yeah, so good. (laughs) Like it, there was a lot of like, it got done it got written in these like weeks before what I thought was the final deadline had another final deadline mid April. That wasn't really the final deadline, but thought it was. And so I was like in a house in LA, just like finishing it. Yeah. It's, it's typically a year is how long they give you. Depends. You can negotiate that. You can say, Nope, I want more time or, Oh, nope. I think I can do it in less time, but I would not advise you to say less time. Give yourself more time. Um, cause I thought I could get it done in nine months. And really, I think if I had cracked down maybe, but like just n- wasn't worth it in terms of my, my own bandwidth. If you don't hit the deadline, what are they going to do? Publish an unfinished book, take away the advance and, and say it's all dead. Like, no. Yes. <laughs> Really? Yes. You believe that to be true? Yeah. But I I, I don't know if they would have done that. They need to see that you've done something. If you, if it's a year later and you've done nothing, yeah, you might get that contract revoked, but it's like, they have to see that you're doing something. It was actually really funny. The first like three pages, I literally have my contract in my closet. I could pull it for you if you wanted. The first three pages are like the actual information of like percentage of royalties and like the stuff that's actually useful. I'm not kidding. It's probably a 20 page contract. The last 17 pages are just like, variations of if you don't turn this in, if you've done nothing, here's what happens. And I'm like, (laughs) I felt like, you know, high achieving a plus student. I'm like, do people just like not turn this in? And like, apparently the answer is yes. So yeah, if you have nothing done, they're probably going to revoke your contract. I would say if it's like basically there, yeah, no, you're right. Like nothing's going to happen. And I, I am weirdly kind of bummed that I now know that the final deadline is not the final deadline because I'm going to have that in the back of my head as I'm writing the second book being like, yeah, but I have more time. (laughs) (laughs) So you, you get the final manuscript done in July and then this goes uh, live at the tail end of December, 2022. So you had about five months after the manuscript is done to prepare for the launch of this. Did that feel like the right amount of time? Do you wish there was less? Do you wish there was more? I think we announced the pre-order campaign before the, the, the final manuscript was even turned in. We announced the pre-order campaign. And I know this cause it was right after my birthday. I think it was the 13th of July. And then I think, yeah, like late July, early August was when we had a final, final draft that gave us about six months to promote. Here's the thing. If you are an author, you're like, cool. I just ran a fucking marathon writing this book. Your marathon is not done. It is just starting. It is just starting. It's a second marathon. It's a marathon. It's a pre-marathon and then the marathon. Marathon. Yeah. It's literally like I ran 26 miles. I'm exhausted. Cool. I'm done. No, actually, this is the this is the fun part. This is literally so most publishers work with authors who just want to write. They don't want to market. They don't want to do press. I'm the exact opposite. I am like writing was painful. I enjoy writing normally. Writing my own book was fucking painful. And now I get to razzle dazzle it. And that's what I'm good at. So I was actually looking forward to this time. However, this whole process, especially this last six months is the time that burned me out. It wasn't even the bandwidth issue. wasn't even like the amount of interviews I was doing. It was the pressure I was putting on myself. Mm. I wanted New York times. I wanted that. I wanted this book to make a huge splash. I wanted it to make a big impact. 
And I'm going to be honest, this isn't healthy. I'll work through it in therapy at some point. But I literally thought to myself, if I don't meet the New York Times list, I, I, I will be like profoundly disappointed, which of course is not why you should do this. And it ultimately isn't why I did it. But I was like, I wanted this thing so badly. Don't do that. Like a book is valuable to people and valuable and a valuable process, regardless of whether you hit a bestseller list or not. And I think that that's the thing that exhausted me more than anything else is I was just chasing this one thing. Truly this book was about like making an impact and like meeting people where they were and being able to have this legacy of this thing. It was also, especially for like the motivation to get me through this six months of really intense promotion where I'm not getting to like meet people who have read it. I'm just having to like run the race. It was just like, I want the New York Times sticker. In terms of like that timeline, I think three to six months is what you want for a pre-order campaign. Uh, the reason we reconnected was I did, uh, I'm doing a series on LinkedIn about like how to promote a book, how to get the bestseller lists and pre-orders are the biggest thing because uh, many reasons, but one any pre-orders that happen count as sales at 12.01 on release day. So if you sell 10,000 copies before the book actually comes out by 12.01 on release day before, you know, the book has actually hit shelves, you've already sold 10,000 copies, which is huge, right? It takes the weight off a little bit from having to do so much heavy lifting in that first week or two. You're using a specific number, 10,000 copies there. Uh, that's the number I hear oftentimes in book circles. Is that a specific number for uh, a benchmark of some kind? Yeah, great question. So uh, the thing about bestseller lists, I'm going to be kind of weaving in and out between like selling campaigns versus bestseller lists, but it, it, for m some people, they're kind of the same thing. There is, it's like almost SEO and Google. Like we have a general best practice of like what Google likes, but there's no, Google does not give us a form of like, if you do this, you will rank at this. The New York Times bestseller list is a hackable thing, but they have never published a like, if you do this, we will guarantee this. There's a general idea that if you sell 10 to 15, and I've heard sometimes as high as 20,000 books in that first week, you will most likely be on the bestseller list. Now, here's the thing about my launch date, December 27th weird time to launch a book. One, I went on Good Morning America, which was great. Everybody else in New York was home asleep in their beds mm. because it was right after Christmas and right before New Year's. Mm -hmm. I booked a week in New York to do press the couple months before. I can get press like nobody's business. It's usually not a big deal. It was because there was nobody in the office. So I literally did GMA. I went and signed a couple books not at any official book signing, but just like went into Barnes and Noble to get some content for us. And then I went home. Like normally when you release a book, especially if you're high profile, like you're doing like in New York or in LA, you're doing a day or two at least of press. I could not do that. The second thing is the pro is you're getting like new year, new you energy with December 27th, right? And you're, you're getting this like, time where people are kind of just sitting and doing nothing, which is great. Like that in-between time of like Christmas and New Year's where like no time exists at all. The con is that you hopefully do a pre-order campaign that's like buy this for Christmas. Uh -huh. 
buy this for a Christmas gift, but it's not going to be under the tree at Christmas, right? Or Hanukkah, right? So it's almost like, hey, like we did a gift certificate. We were like, hey, you can print this out and give this to your loved one. Is like, this book is coming. I bought it for you. The other huge con, normally we would be competing against some of the like mainstays on the New York Times bestseller list, but really a bunch of new books. Most books that hit the list leave after a week. They have a big splashy like week release and then they leave. When it's December 27th, you're competing against any book that has new year, new you energy Mm. that has been out forever. Mm. Now, it would be hard for me to compete against Atomic Habits on a good day. (laughs) Impossible to compete against a book with the word habits in it. (laughs) And of course, written as well as it is, December 27th. So did you choose this date? Impossible. Or was this dictated to you? Uh, My publisher chose this date because again, like part of me is like, that was really smart. New year, new energy. But the other part of me is like, I had to compete against a bunch of people. So we ended up being number four on the New York times bestseller list. I think on a normal week, we could have been at number two, maybe number one, but I can't think that way. I can't do like alternate universe stuff. Well, I know at month four, you had 70,000 copies sold. How many copies did you have at launch? That first week, was 19,700. So that included all of the pre-order books and then all of the books that were sold during that first week. After one more short break, Tori and I talk about the role that independent bookstores play in the New York Times bestselling list, the things that she did well and the things that she would change if she was writing another book. So stick around. We'll be right back. This episode is sponsored by Podcast Movement. For the past decade, Podcast Movement has organized the world's largest gathering of podcasters, featuring thousands of attendees, hundreds of breakout sessions, panels, and workshops, plus the largest trade show in podcasting. Podcast Movement helps podcasters of all experience levels create, grow, and profit from their show. It's suitable for beginners, but you'll also have the opportunity to meet some of the biggest names in the industry. I've been to several Podcast Movement events, and not only is the programming incredible, but the culture and vibe are incredible too. It attracts thoughtful, empathetic, and collaborative people, which makes sense when you think about the medium of podcasting. Podcast Movement hosts two events per year. The first just wrapped up, but their flagship conference is happening August 19th through the 22nd in Washington, D.C. Attendees have the freedom to choose their own adventure across several different stages throughout the four-day event, not to mention dozens of amazing networking events, parties, and the expo hall floor. Tracks include podcast creation, video and live streaming, industry professional, plus several stages of curated programming from some of the top companies in podcasting. It's truly a unique event, and if you are a podcaster, I cannot recommend it enough. Right now, tickets are available at super duper early bird pricing. And as a Creator Science listener, you can save $50 on top of that by visiting podcastmovement.com slash science. That's podcastmovement.com slash science. Welcome back to my conversation with Tori Dunlap of Her First 100K. We just started talking about the process for which New York Times chooses their best sellers. And Tori told me that there's an interesting insight when it comes to independent bookstores. And so I wanted to dive deep into that. Okay, we, we can talk for like three hours about this. The other thing that New York Times and other booksellers or excuse me, other book bestseller lists look into is it's not just how many books you have sold. I wish it was that easy, but it's also like the diversity of sales. So if you sell 
10,000 books on Amazon and in Washington state, you probably won't get on the list. They're looking for, are you not just in one state? Are you not just selling on the coasts? Are you like a universally applicable book? And are you selling in bookstores that aren't just Amazon, but especially independent bookstores? So a lot of the marketing that we did or a lot of the collaborations we did were with independent bookstores. One, because it's the right fucking moral thing to do. Like we wanted to be able to support these independent bookstores. But two, we were working specifically with bookstores that we know reported on time. Some bookstores do not report their sales to bestseller lists at all, or they report them weeks late. And if you want to be on that list for the first week, which is the best chance you have, you need to make sure that all of the sales you possibly can are being reported. So that was part of the strategy as well. Man, this seems, this introduces a new wrinkle because I had heard that before, but I hadn't thought about it in this way, which is from a, from a marketing perspective, Creators like you and I seem like we would have a real leg up on writing and publishing a book because we have a built-in audience, we say go buy it. But from a user experience perspective, we're probably pointing them towards Amazon or whatever like the easy purchasing destination is. So how did you how did you direct your your fans, your your community to go and support the book on presale in a diversified way? I'm literally, Jay, gonna pull for you the last time we got numbers, because this is gonna shock you. Okay. So these were my numbers as of the end of April. So this was like when I knew I hit 70,000. That was in four months, right? Book came out late December. Let's even call it like almost January, right? So basically January to end of April, I sold 70,000 copies and that's every kind of copy. That's hardcover, that's ebook, that's audiobook. Of the hardcovers, I sold about 50,000 hardcovers. So roughly 20,000 are coming from other mediums. Of those 50,000, 25,000 were Amazon. So half. The other half is Barnes and Noble. I am lucky enough to be sold in Target stores, Target, Walmart, every independent bookstore that exists in the United States that stocks my book, right? Books a million, which is a thing in some places. I've never been to a Books a Million. Yeah. So every, every other source made up half Amazon was the other half. So yeah, you're dealing with this kind of like, uh, like I live in Seattle. I'm not a fan of Amazon. Do I have a prime subscription? I do. Like that's the majority of sales are happening from an add to cart and a quick buy on Amazon. And Amazon typically has the cheapest price, right? Independent bookstores are either selling at a slight discount or they're selling at the, you know, the number on the back of the book. Amazon's cutting that by at least probably 25 to 30%. So the way you incentivize people to buy from independent bookstores, one, we have an audience that is very, very committed to, uh, you know, bettering the world and to supporting local businesses, especially women and BIPOC owned businesses. And so that was an easier sell than I think for the average person to just be like, hi, support your local independent bookstore that especially right now is struggling. The second thing we did, if you are for whatever reason, like tuning me out and like kind of half listening to this episode and you want to write a book, I need you to like pull your car over and I need you to stop. And I need you to listen to this because this is single-handedly, I think one of the smartest things we did. Our publisher sourced four independent bookstores that knew we knew were reporting numbers on time 
And we did signed copies for those four independent bookstores. They also were four independent bookstores who shipped nationwide. Mm. So we had one in Seattle. We had one in Colorado. We had one in Chicago and I think one in Utah, but they shipped nationwide. And what we did is I literally, HarperCollins sent me 3000 book plates. Book plates are like the like nice little, you know, they're like a square. And then for me, they had like financial feminist in the corner and they're like cardstock. They're like fancier paper. I signed 3000 books before the book even went on sale. Wow. And so what do you mean? Was it signing the book or was it signing something that goes in the book? I don't understand. It goes in the book. It's considered a signed copy, right? There's like the signed copies that are actually literally my signature on a page. For many reasons, I think COVID, just like shipping, it's a lot easier now to sign a book plate and have that inserted. It's also more flexible. The person can like do something else with that book plate if they want. It's not like in the book. So those signed copies like went to those those independent bookstores. And then on our book page on our website, we said, hey, here are all the links you can get the book, including Amazon. Here's a separate section that says, if you want to sign copy, buy from one of these four places that ship nationwide while supplies last. We were told, especially by the one in Seattle, because I literally now have a personal relationship with them. I stop in every couple of months just to check in and say hi. They were like, we've never seen a more successful pre-order campaign they have sold hundreds of copies of Financial Feminist. And they literally have told me that this has made a huge That's impact amazing. on our business, which is so fucking That's cool. Awesome. New York Times aside, like that was like, like I get a little teary talking about it. Like that was one of the coolest parts is going into paper boat books in Seattle, meeting the husband and wife team who opened their bookstore mid pandemic and literally like playing numbers games with them and being like, Hey, how many of you sold? And they're like, you know, 180 before the books even out. Like it was just crazy. It was so cool. So one, it makes a huge impact. And two, it helps you as an author sell more books, but also be more appealing to New York Times, Wall Street Journal, USA Today bestseller lists. That's awesome. Um, For some reason, I just assumed that local bookstores, real bookstores that weren't Amazon did not do pre-sales. No, they 100% do. Some of them do. Yeah. And, um, it's, it's like, it's, it's a matter of also figuring out, like I said, like local bookstores are great, but specifically with pre-order campaigns, especially if you have an audience, you want to make sure they're shipping nationwide. Cause if you live in Seattle and you want a copy that's signed, you're like, Oh, okay. Yeah. I'll order from this, this signed, you know, uh, this place in Seattle. But if I live in, I don't know, Omaha, Nebraska, right. And we didn't work with a, <laughs> a bookstore in Omaha, Nebraska, right. You're probably going to whatever is closest. So I imagine like they're going to the Chicago one or the Utah one. And that's the other thing is it's like, you're getting this bookstore is getting sales from all over the country, not just normally where they're located. And that was, that was really cool. You were just looking at something that was telling you your historic book sales over time. Is that something yep. that is available to you in real time? Or do you have to get fed that information no. from like the publisher? My biggest pet peeve. Some publishers, because I have talked with other friends, have a like portal where they can go in and they can see that. I do not have that portal. I would I would kill for that portal. Oh my gosh, um, that would drive I me nuts. probably annoyed 
I annoyed my publisher so much because every, especially like the first couple of weeks, every day I was like, I want numbers. I want numbers. I want numbers. Cause I, I wanted to know. And I think in a way that like, again, other authors are just like, I wrote the book and like, I don't care how it sells. I was like, I wrote the book and that was the hard part. And now I get to sell it. Like, that's the thing I'm good at. So yeah, I have been obsessively still now tracking numbers. Like, you know, we will get they've now, they've literally told me, they're like, Tori, we will send it to you once a month at the beginning of the month. And I'm like, okay, okay, fine. Okay. Enough. I just like sit you got, you and like the wait with popcorn. <laughs> right. Right. They're like, why do you care? And I'm like, I still care. But it's because weirdly, like I, I am motivated by that. I check the, the like ranking on Amazon for financial feminists daily still. Because that's the number I do have is like, where is it at in the charts? Sometimes I check it twice a day. When it was like book season, that was like a 10 time. That was probably like my most opened app was just like, that was the number that was publicly available to me. Yeah. Because, and I I know you're the kind of the same cut from the same cloth in that way where it's just like, it becomes a game and it's really fun. It's like, oh, cool. How much, how, how many can we sell? What can we do? Like, the, the other hack for like pre-orders is like get compensated with book buys. So normally, you know, I might charge like $20,000 for a keynote speech somewhere, ah. but I will trade it. I will say, oh, pay me half of that. And then the other half in a book buy, right? Or for a limited of ta- amount of time, especially if you're like, you know, an author who doesn't command a $20,000 speaking fee is just say, I'll speak for free if you pay for a hundred books right? Or 50 books. And that way you can actually control where those books are ordered from too. So when we did uh, a speaking engagement at Morningstar in Chicago, who did I call the independent bookstore we already had a relationship with in Chicago? And your publisher should help set this up of, of saying like, they will get a book by discount. They will be able to order from this independent store. Again, supports the indie store, but also helps you in terms of your numbers. You can book these out in advance too. My friend, Tiffany Aliche, who wrote Get Good With Money, her, her moniker is the budgetista. She has another episode on her podcast where she breaks all of this down. She was the most helpful, sat down with me and like had very transparent conversations, kind of like this of like, here's how to do this. Here's pre-order campaigns. So she was so great. And one of the things she said to me was like, you don't have to book these speaking engagements for, you know, two weeks after you, you release the book, right? It can be a virtual speaking engagement three months in advance. Typically Mm. these things get scheduled like that because your bandwidth's going to be so tight, right? But book it now, do it later, right? Get the book by now and say, okay, I'll accept that as payment period, or I'll accept that as payment. And then the other, like half of it, I'll get upon completion, but be able to do that. So you can increase, you know, your, your pre-orders, but also like have a good understanding of your bandwidth and your schedule. So helpful. Um, well, with a little bit of time that we have left, I just want to give any more space for anything where you feel like this is something we definitely did well, or this is something that I would not do a second time. I hired a publicist in a PR agency for the first time. I will not do that again. It was not worth the money. I would say if you're not great at getting PR, it's probably worth the money. I am my best hype woman. I have gone on Good Morning America, The Today Show, Forbes, CNN, CNBC, BBC, New York Times, like you name it. I have done it without a publicist. And we thought, okay, we need a publicist because this is sexy and fun. And they got us a couple like big things. I think they were really instrumental in getting me on Forbes 30 under 30. I think they had some contacts there. I had submitted an application. It was obviously very strong. And I think they they nudged it a little bit. 
other than that and a couple other like, you know, kind of minor things, it, I don't think it was worth mm, it for okay. us. Yeah. It was like seven K a month, which is pretty cheap, honestly, as far as like publicists or like PR agencies go. Yeah. We got on GMA that was, uh, actually through Harper Collins. A lot of the other press we did was just our own hustle. So if, you know, with my business and with our capability to get PR, I would not do that again. The thing I would spend more time doing, uh, which is something, um, again, I want to acknowledge that Tiffany and I had many conversations with about, and she was so good at doing is some sort of like launch group of dedicated fans who are just excited about the book and are willing to promote it in exchange for exclusive access to you, merch, a exclusive like ebook copy of the book a month before anybody else. Um, I'm trying to remember what we called it. And of course I can't remember off the top of my head, but like getting a couple hundred people from your audience together who are going to be excited, who are going to talk about it. Tiffany actually told me that she, I think she had, I'm trying to remember her number, a couple hundred. She goes, they didn't just buy one copy. On average, they bought five. Wow. Like the individuals bought five copies themselves. Right, right. And so you can kind of, you can do the math on that of just like that dedicated group of people. So we did that too late. We kind of started and launched that. I want to say, was it like two months or six weeks before? Wasn't enough time. The actual launch of that is probably the time was right, but we planned it for probably a week before and then launched it. You need a way more like logistical planning. I would start that process three to four months out, launch it about six weeks to to eight weeks out. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Tori. I love having guests back on the show and I love when guests are this transparent and open and honest about the process. I thought this was super eye-opening, very, very insightful when it comes to writing a book. And if you are thinking about writing a book, I hope you enjoyed it as well. I'd love to hear what you think about this episode. If you enjoyed it, please tweet at me at jklaus. Let me know. Send me a note there on Twitter. I guess it's X now or Instagram. I love hearing from you. If you want to follow Tori, go to herfirst100k.com or find her on Instagram and TikTok, herfirst100k. Thanks to Tori for being on the show. Thank you to Nathan Tonhunter for mixing this episode. Thank you to Emily Klaus for our artwork and Brian Skeel for creating our music. If you enjoyed this episode, like I said, you can reach out to me at jklaus and let me know. And if you really want to say thank you, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next week.